Hi, I'm Rosie. And I'm Emma. And this is Metier. We continue our series of portraits of women at work with Grace Gelder, an artist, photographer and workshop facilitator. So I'm Grace Gelder and I'm a photographer. Can you tell us a little bit about your work? Yeah, um, so currently I'm, I feel like I've moved into a new territory of photography and that's sort of spilling into facilitating workshops as well. And then in my personal work, I'm doing a lot of work around intention and photo shoots, and I'm also doing a lot of work with people who really don't like something about their image. So it, and the two cross over as well. So I think um, the work that I've been developing since last autumn has been getting people to do a bit of prep work before they come to the photo shoot that isn't just choosing an outfit and... Um, getting their hair done, for example, which is fine if that happens as well. But um, I'm, I'm asking people to come with some sort of an idea of what they want to experience and what they might want to see differently. And there's something nice about the word intention that I realised recently that I didn't know before, which is that an intention is something that you hold with you all the time, um, whereas a goal is something that you work towards, so it's not in the present moment it's something that's over there mm. and that was that really helped me clarify why I kept using that word in my current shoots and it was born out of doing new year's shoots with friends of mine I would you know have a plan for new year which involved lots of friends and I would say I've got an idea guys everybody bring an object that represents something that you want for the coming year and the first one was on Dartmoor and we were in a gale force wind and fog. So the photos weren't that brilliant. But um, people really thought about it and spent a lot of time preparing that object. And that had a real impact on them already before they even got to the photo shoot. And they were friends of mine as well, so I was able to see how their themes played out over the coming year, which was really, really lovely to do, actually. So I did it again in this January just gone and then I started offering it to other people as well so I've done about I say this this winter as a new year photo shoot um, ritual there was about 15 people that did a shoot with me and I've had some lovely feedback as well so yeah so in 2007 I did a master's in photography and that was a really amazing course and it was based in China and I did my final project in Mongolia and it was very sort of journalistic in approach but with an emphasis on documentary and reportage as well and on that I realised that portraits were the thing that I enjoyed doing the most. I did do some landscape stuff as well which was nice as a kind of I'm on a, I'm on a journey, I'm going travelling, I'm going to have some pictures but the thing that really gripped me was working with people and I think that was the point when I realised the impact that a photo shoot can have on somebody and I was in Mongolia and I was doing a series called Professional Mongolian Women because I got there and I couldn't understand why every office or bureaucratic situation I went into it was women who were behind the desks and then I discovered that 66% of the professional workforce in Mongolia are female. 
um, judges, lawyers, doctors, academics. It was just such a surprise to me. And so uh, that was my final project. And I did, I think I must have photographed over 30 women um, in various professional settings. And my absolute favourite was the woman who was the head of the women's prison. And she has, like, real, like, army... She, she's a member of the army. So she has this uniform, it's all green and very pristine. And I'd managed to gain access to go and meet her and have a look around the prison. And it was really out in the middle of nowhere, and the winters there are minus 40. And she had gone in and built them an indoor toilet, which was quite a nice gesture, I felt. So she was known for being quite progressive. Um, but when I met her, I was quite scared at first. She was very, like, you know. And then I set up my camera, and and then she went off into this little room, and when she came back, she'd put bright pink lipstick on, and it, it was this most amazing thing. And I really noticed how important it was to the ladies to curate what was on their desk that became really important like what objects are in the shot what items have I got here that say this is who I am and for most of them there would be Genghis Khan in there somewhere he's hugely important across the country Um, and then they would have you know um, items whether it's something colourful or folders or you know Whatever, and that was that was really. Now I realised that was the beginning of what I'm currently looking at in more detail now. So, yeah, and that was yes, yeah, so that was 2007, and a, a large part of my course was also participatory photography. So we were really encouraged to explore that as a a way of achieving a different set of objectives with photography. Sometimes it's more ethical to give other people cameras and help them tell their story. So that's something that I've done a lot since 2008 when I moved back to the UK and then moved to London. And I did that a lot with charities. I worked with homeless people quite often. Um, and I worked without deliberately doing so, often with women's organisations and charities that were um, supporting vulnerable women. So that's been a huge theme, really. (laughs) And then I um, had a variety of of part-time jobs but kept the photography going and I I got a place on a residency in Corsica. Uh, I did a summer school in Latvia and that was really another sort sort of fork in the road, if you like, when you look back over your career so far and you think, oh, that was a very important moment. And there was a, a lovely woman called Vanessa Winship there and she did a portfolio review with me and she said, well, it's very obvious to me that you can take a great portrait. She said, but I want to see more of you in your work. And I just, I didn't, I didn't really process it mentally, but I did feel it. I was like, oh, this feels really uncomfortable. And maybe it's just because, you know, you're kind of striding along thinking you're onto something and then somebody goes, ah, ah, <laughs> you know, you know, what about this? And it just threw me. Um, and I, I remember really sitting with it and I felt very uncomfortable for a few days on that um, summer school. And there's about 50 people from all over, mostly Eastern Europe. I'd found it on a website and I was the only English person that had ever gone. And it was an absolutely amazing find. Um, and... 
it was just a really great opportunity to um, be intensely focused on photography for a week. And I ended up doing a series there, which was, uh, I mean, it's very difficult to describe, but I ended up meeting this lady that lived in this little rural Latvian village and her son was really playful and he had a gorilla mask. And so he was wearing the gorilla mask and then this granny comes along and she's drunk. She's Russian. And it was just a very surreal afternoon and I photographed the whole thing. And basically, <laughs> um, the granny started to climb trees and then she fell out the tree with her granddaughter. And it was just a completely bonkers afternoon and I came back with these photos and was like, where did you get these from? <laughs> and, um, and I remember thinking, ah... Oh, this is a bit more me, isn't it? You know, like a granny falling out the tree. And, and I took some really nice portraits of, of the son and the, of her grandson. And there's one where his monkey mask is like half covering his face. And I, I really like that picture. And that's quite a... It's a nice memory for me to have of that afternoon as well. So there is always this, this theme of objects coming in and things being quite symbolic somehow, which is not uncommon to photography in general. But... It's something I'm now realising um, I've picked up along the way and bringing it now more into focus, I think. So when you spent that time with that family in <laughs> Latvia, how did it make them feel? How did it make you feel? Um, well, I'm still friends with the granddaughter on Facebook, actually, who's now grown up and married with children. Um, and we had a real language barrier, like we couldn't really communicate that well. But um, the afternoon was just really fun and I did give them some pictures and um, they came to the final like exhibition thing at the end. And it just, I don't know, it's just, it's finding ways to communicate with people that aren't verbal, first of all, but also across like lots of different um, social, economic, cultural barriers like they were I think I met the daughter of the older lady because she was the cleaner for the boarding school that we were all staying in for the summer school which was a boarding school for children with a disability so they worked and lived there as part of that um, school mm. and they, their flat was really basic and really simple mm. But we all had such a fun time and they welcomed me really like generously let me into their home with a camera, which mm. is quite a privilege because cameras are very loaded. Mm -hmm. um, and at first the granny didn't want me to take pictures of her because I think she felt a bit self-conscious that she was a bit drunk at two o'clock in the afternoon. Mm. And then when we just started to have more fun, you know, it was that kind of went out the window. So yeah, it was just it was a really magical afternoon, and then it it never really happened in that way again. It was like a real, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> How do cameras normally um, play in a situation when you're with someone? It's so well, it very much depends on what the cultural relationship is to a camera. I found because in China there was a real culture of reproduction, you know, whether it's, obviously not children, but whether it's, <laughs> <laughs> whether it's CDs, T-shirts, so there's no sentimentality 
or um, nostalgia around origin or, he- or like things or heritage or buildings, just like, you know, let's build a new one, let's copy that. There's, there's a different, it's a different cultural mentality. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, it is very different. And when you're there, you can just go up to someone on the street and take a picture and it's not considered offensive. I mean, it, obviously it might depend on the person, but on a cultural level, it was very easy to just do street photography in China. And then when I got to Mongolia, I was carrying on the same way and people were not reacting well. And then someone said that there is a fear in their country that if you take someone's picture, you're taking a piece of their soul. Mm. And apparently it's the same in Tibet. So there is this kind of loaded relationship to cameras. And it's very much... Well, it's very important that when I'm meeting somebody, um, I sense how they're going to be around the camera and I did a a workshop last weekend two weekends ago um, where I took a group of women out into the countryside in Hertfordshire and each person had to pick some things that represented something that about themselves that they like but often gets forgotten that was the instruction it was quite simple and four people came and I know that one person in particular had a really, um, I don't know how to put it, but she has real difficulties with body image. And she said for her it had been a real build-up to doing this day. And the whole idea was that we're all going to go out into the countryside, we're going to have a picnic and we're going to do photos. And everybody's guaranteed like a this much time and then pictures at the end. And... It was quite experimental, but I had done that with friends, as I said already. And it was quite amazing to have four people being photographed in the same day because you really tune into what each person's relationship to a camera is. You know, there's there's somebody who's, like, really flamboyant and absolutely loving it. There's somebody else who's, like, incredibly present, will just can just sit and look at the camera incredibly still for a really long time. Then there are people who have, you know, slight awkwardness around it. It's it's so um, different from person to person. And we were all struck by the lady who said that she, you know, was really quite scared. How much stillness. Like, when she was in front of the camera, everyone just went quiet. And it almost like she really demanded attention just by being so present. It was quite mind-blowing. I'm still you know, sort of trying to understand a bit more about that because, you know, I was thinking, is it because everybody's worried that this is really hard for her? But I don't think it was. I think she just, like, had that natural thing within her. But, you know, there's some... There's barriers in the way of her being able to look at the pictures afterwards and appreciate them. But she did write to me and say that she liked some of the pictures, which is really unusual. So I was so honoured. And one of the nicest pieces of feedback I think I've had in a while where somebody that I know has that much difficulty can see something different in themselves. And being outdoors helps a lot, actually, because um, I think in a studio it's such a tight container. You know, there's nothing else. It's just lights and camera and you. Whereas when you're outdoors... There's much more opportunity for the person being photographed to go and select the place they want to be. 
to choose their own place is more autonomy for them in the way that I structure things. But also, um, you know, it's incredibly, like, what's the word? I'm trying to think. It's, it diffuses the intensity of the photographer-subject dynamic in a different way. And that's, that's something I love to do. So as soon as the spring arrives and it's warm enough, or even for some uh, brave friends in the winter, <laughs> like, let's go out. And, yeah, and it's just, I just, for me, it's just a lovely way of working. And I am aware that I've picked a country where it rains and it's overcast <laughs> really often. So I'm not quite sure how that's all going to come together. But, yeah, I mean, it's something, it's literally the first time I did a group one like that. And I hope that I can do lots more because it's such a nice way of working. And, of course, in my head, everybody was going to take it in turns and have a slot. But that is not how I work. So it just became a huge conversation walking around this grounds of this stately home. Um, and I just said, actually, let's just, when you see something you like, tell me and we'll stop and we'll do some shots there. So it became like a real, you know, fluid, one person's photograph, the next person's photograph. Then someone's inspired by someone else. Everybody supports each other. It's a really nice way of working. So... What what is it that um, compels you to do to do sessions like that? Why do you think this is an important kind of service to offer people? Hmm. Um, it's a very good question. I think um, the way that photography is set up commercially a lot of the time is very much um, you buy the photographer's vision and you like the way they work. And you trust your, you trust them with your idea. Um, that's my understanding. So what I like to do is to kind of shake it up a little bit and open out a bit more space for a conversation to happen, whether that's with the space or with me or with, you know, a kind of end goal. So I think. I mostly get people who are very uncomfortable with cameras but need pictures. That's my main... Um, people I get referred to me. Oh, I know, I, I really don't like having my picture taken. So-and-so said that you're, you're quite good with that. <laughs> um, which is great because then that person isn't turning up saying, I want this, this, this and this and this. Which is why I think, even though I've kind of flirted with it, I've done headshots for... Uh, Deutsche Bank once you know it's this kind of I've dipped my toe into corporate world mostly through CSR corporate social responsibility projects but it's just it's a bit restrictive and this is a really weird metaphor but I was coming back from Manchester at the weekend with a friend and she has this new convertible so we started the journey with the top down and all this air and it was like we were really interacting with the weather, and then we were noticing clouds because it depended on whether we might get wet, you know, whether we might get soaked in half an hour's time depended on, you know, the clouds over there. So we were much more, like, engaged with our surroundings. And then at some point, we, she said, I'm in a, I'm, I'm on a red light, I'm going to put the top down because that's not looking good. And she put the top down and we both just felt a bit like, Ooh. you know, it's that feeling like I'm suddenly like... 
Um, and obviously it's practical, but <laughs> but I just noticed it's that kind of, you know, when you're not able to connect with what's around you, it, it feels quite different. One of the things I'm doing at the moment is developing a workshop with Tate Britain in response to the Joe Spence collection that they've got there at the moment. And I've had some absolutely brilliant conversations in the lead up to that. And the most recent one was talking about the collaborative work that Joe Spence and Rosie Martin did, which is exhibited in the gallery, and how when they were working, there was a, a direct... Um, there was a direct challenge to the male gaze that had been leading um, the way with photography until kind of the 80s, I guess, would be second wave feminism time. And what they did was say that the person in the photo had the authorship. So whoever's in the image um, is effectively the author of that image. And the person who's taking the image is a facilitator for that image to be made. And that is a, as a theme that's very, very interesting. Um, and me and um, the person I was having a meeting with were saying, you know, this sort of does present difficulties down the line when you're dealing with rights, intellectual property, authorship. If there are two people involved, you're going to get into a conversation about who did what and... You know, all those questions arise. And then I thought, well, we're not direct... We've been challenging the male gaze for quite a number of years and I'm not at all suggesting that, you know, everything's balanced fine and we can all just sit down and relax. But there is something about um, exploring and playing with that complexity and that grey area because most people don't realise that they can be the director of their own image or the author of their own image in that way. They might think, well, I want this dress, this lipstick, this um, pose, but there is, there is more that you can explore as the subject of a, photo of a photograph. And that's something that I'm building into a workshop setting so that people can experience how are they as photographer and, a, and being the director as photographer or how are they as subject and director or subject and the person who's not the director, like just playing around with that dynamic. Because as soon as you have a camera and you bring that into a space and there's somebody in front of it, you've got a power dynamic instantly. And it's just very interesting how... Um, people's relationship to power will play out in that setting. So without it sort of dropping into really deep therapeutic work, <laughs> it's, in, it's possible to explore that lightly and see how that sits with you. And then perhaps that will, you know, affect how people are the next time they're made visible in some way. Are you concerned with <clears throat> how people go away and... Um, reflect and use the the experience they've had with you. Are you interested in? You mm. mentioned therapy there. I mean, are you interested in 
yeah. changing people? <laughs> That's a big question. Am I interested in changing people? I think I'm interested in facilitating what's possible for people in any given moment. I think the word change is something that's up to that person. But I do believe that there is a transformative potential in being photographed in a way that is a bit more um, carefully constructed. And there's a lot of this whole idea of visibility and... I mean, you know, as a photographer, you expose. That's what you do. So you expose things. And I notice lots of things in a photo shoot. So for me, it's very much about when is it okay to say something, when is it not? That's something that I've developed. Um, not always perfectly, but that's something that I'm aware of. And... I've kind of done my own various paths of personal development and at the moment I'm mostly working with the constellation method which has been really brilliant because it's it's very much about seeing all the different aspects and how they interact which is really helpful when I'm doing photo shoots and I can only start to notice things because I've noticed them in myself so for me it's really important but for my work it just means I can be a lot more discerning about what feels good and what doesn't. And that's all I can do, really, is go, that, does that feel OK? No. And trust my feelings around it. Um, I don't think there's one formula or one way of working that's um, the answer, basically. <laughs> can I um, ask about... So you're talking about kind of control... Not control of the of 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 your of people's image, like how they mm -hmm. bring their own ideas to it. And I know you had like a crazy experience where you had lots of cameras on you, and you and you yes. <laughs> and you spoke about how you were very conscious of how you wanted to control mm -hmm. what the message was. And I wondered if maybe if mm -hmm. you could talk about that a bit yeah. and how that kind of has informed yeah. things. Yes, that's a good link because I think talking about visibility and exposure. Um, after my self-marriage went completely viral internationally, I was on camera and written about a lot. Um, and ironically, the very first article that was in The Guardian, I asked them to um, send me the final draft, which they did, and I read, and I thought, yeah, OK, that's OK. Um, you know, did not think it was going to go so big. So then the process of being... Um, filmed and videoed and interviewed and photographed um, and written about to that extent was a massive learning curve and I'm sure that that has affected the way that I work now and it's very much about um, staying quite neutral and centred for want of a better expression I think centred in a sort of Buddhist meditation sense is the closest I can articulate to it because if I got really into all the people that were saying this is amazing then that's not centered and if I then was reading all the trolls and thinking oh no like I'm really you know I'm really this I'm really that that's not centered either it was really important for me not to not to lose my center in that situation which was a different experience than I would have imagined it was 
like I just remember calling people and having really normal conversations to just remind myself of daily, everyday, practical things. I didn't really want to talk about what was going on in, in that way other than to go, yeah, it's a bit bonkers, isn't it? And I think that um, the original desire to control what went out, the sort of origin of it, um, was quite a healthy decision for me to have made. And then there was a point where I had to just let go. <laughs> it's like, okay, yeah, people are going to say all sorts of stuff. So it's about um, dancing with that autonomy, really. And ever since then, I've realised that um, I still have lots of conversations. I still have a lot of... Um, realizations or moments where I think oh that's interesting connected to the self-marriage and I'm aware that it's really important whenever I'm asked to speak somewhere that my voice goes into the equation because everyone else is talking about me so my kind of um, feeling whenever I'm invited to do something as long as it's something that I really want to do is to do it to add my voice because even at the talk I did in Bristol I did a 5 by 15 I met some brilliant people and um, it was it was a really great experience because people came up to me after and said oh I did read that article but I didn't really get it and now I've heard you speak it makes sense so there is something about um, the balance of autonomy without like really like intense attachment somewhere along the line and I think if we can all have that relationship to our own image, it would be quite a healthy, healthy, a healthy world. But as you can see, that things flip into narcissism quite easily. And I think it's only when people hear my story and my reasons for marrying myself and, you know, realise that I didn't do it for media attention, <laughs> that they realise that, um, that it actually makes some sense. How did it come about? Why did you do it? Um, so I think, on one level, it was just one of those ideas that popped into my head, basically. Where I just thought, ah, oh, you know, I'd, I'd done a, a workshop that had been focused around agreements. So the agreements you make with other people and the agreements you make with yourself. And I realised that it would be good for me to have some solid agreements with myself. And then the natural progression in my mind was to go, oh, I'm going to marry myself. And um, there were a few snippets along the way that kind of probably contributed to that. But in that moment, it seemed like the most natural thing to do. And then I thought, you know, I gave myself a deadline and a time frame and, and um, made it happen. And then six months later, somebody mentioned it. The celebrant who did my wedding talked about it in a, in a talk about being a celebrant. And there was a journalist in the audience and he proposed to me that he writes a story and sells it. And I, that's when I was saying, you know, I have to know what you're going to write, so I need to see the final draft, which is hilarious now, in hindsight. <laughs> but um, I'd also been single for about seven years at the time and I thought, well, actually, I'm having a great time. There are things that are going really well and there are things that I could do with improvement. So it was a really great way of just doing a kind of a, an audit of my life, going, OK, that's good, that's not working so well, and celebrating the things that were going well 
and then making commitments to improve the things that weren't. Um, yeah. So what was your marriage like? The, the wedding, wedding itself? Yeah, um, it was very kind of last minute, <laughs> a bit like my holiday booking. <laughs> so I, I, I left everything till the last minute. I don't know if it was the whole pre-wedding jitters thing. It felt like it. Um, and then it was very collaborative and it was in a friend's farmhouse in Devon. And I thought, because I sent the invites out really late, that maybe like 10 people would come. And there were 45 people there on the day, so it was quite a surprise. And because I went to uni in Devon, when I was walking around the market, I kept seeing people saying, oh, I'm doing this thing tomorrow if you want to come. And then there was, like, kids of the people whose house it was and then their friends. So there was actually someone from every single decade, if you like. Mm. Someone, in, like, you know, a friend told me at the end she was pregnant, so there was mm. somebody in utero. <laughs> <laughs> somebody under 10... Teenagers, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s. So it was really nice because it felt like a really community event. Mm. But it was also incredibly overwhelming because for me to realise all these people had come to witness this and celebrate it was really quite something. And I had a, you know, a cry on a few occasions during the day. It was a bit like... Oh. Um, but it was, it was the vows that were really important to me and that's been really helpful ever since and that brought in all the aspects of my life that were important to me. So you want to hear my vows? Um, I'm probably about getting them in the right order. So the first vow is to take excellent care of myself practically, financially and physically. The second one is to support my creative practice. The third one is to take more risks in matters of the heart. The fourth one is to nourish my adventurous spirit. And the fifth one is to commit to my own process of personal transformation so that I can help other people do the same. Did, did you think that you would be able to, to make a career like this? Like, did you have any concept that this is what, you know, that you, you're able to make a living doing this? Like, wow. Yeah, it's a, uh, yeah, I think, um, I think my MA was great because he was very, encouraging about all the different ways that photography can be put out into the world and that was nine years ago and it's a very different climate now and everybody's got a camera on their smartphone we certainly didn't have that then um so I think I think for me I've always been stubborn so even when I had like no money I've kept going with the photography, like it just wouldn't go away. You know, I never tried to make it go away, but you know, I tried all sorts of other things, but I think that's the thread. That's the only consistent thread in my life. Like everything else around me changes, but that thing is the thing that stays. Um, and I just didn't realize what that meant or felt like when I was younger. But actually, you really have to be quite stubborn and determined to keep that thread in your life because it's quite delicate 
So it's like protecting something that's very, very delicate and not letting it, you know, get trampled on. But that's quite a challenge, actually, I've realised. Thank you so much to Grace Gelder for sharing her time and headspace with us. Next time, we'll be meeting a new female voice with a different kind of career. So look out for the next Metier episode at www.metierproject.org.